When there is a Christian who is engaged in quarreling and arguing and fighting and conflict with others, the question comes, where does it come from? How can this be? Where does it come from? Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright. And on today's program, Tom will begin a new 12-part series called War and Peace, Learning to Deal with Conflict. What does the Bible say about how you should deal with conflict? Is it possible for Christians to come into personal conflict with each other, even within the church? Well, throughout this series, Tom will explore what James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, say about the source of conflicts with others, identifying the solutions, as well as three practical steps for dealing with conflict. But before we begin, here's Tom with some opening thoughts on this series. Tom? James is going to teach us very specifically how to deal with conflict. Interestingly enough, though, that doesn't begin with dealing with the cause of the conflict. Instead, he, he encourages us to take a long look at ourselves and to see how we may be contributing to that conflict and the very specific steps that we can take to deal with that conflict. And so we're going to learn eminently practical ways to deal with the conflict that we all face in our lives. Thanks, Tom. And friend, open your Bible now and let's join Tom Pennington on The Word Unleashed. A number of years ago, a group of academics and historians studied the world's history and released this remarkable and startling conclusion. That if you were to start at 3600 B.C. and move to the present, the world has known less than 292 years of peace. The rest of all of those thousands of years, the world has been riddled with war. There have been over 14,000 wars, these academics discovered, in which some 3.6 billion people have died. One particular man by the name of Quincy, Professor Quincy, in his book, The Study of War, examines just the period between 1480 A.D., and 1941. During those 460 years, 461 years, nations were involved in the following numbers of major wars just during those 460 years. Great Britain, 78 major wars. France, 71. Spain, 64. Russia, 61. Austria, 52. Germany, 23, and the U.S., of course, because of its relative youth in terms of the age of nations, 13, China, 11, and Japan, 9. It's amazing to see how the history of the world is a history of war. This has always been true of humanity, starting at the very first murder in Genesis chapter 4, running through human history all the way to Revelation 21, when at the end of the millennial reign of Christ, Christ will ultimately demolish all of his enemies, Satan, and all of those who oppose him. And for the first time, from that time forward in history, 
in eternity, there will be no war. Sadly, our world is absolutely filled with fighting, and not just at the level of nations. No part of human life and experience is free from sinful conflict, whether it's in the workplace where there is subtle infighting or subtle antagonism, whether it's conflict separating the best of friends and the relationship of friendship, or whether it's in the home. Conflict, for many, is a regular part of life in their home. It goes on between siblings, between parents and children, and all too commonly between spouses. In fact, you may be sitting here this morning, and your marriage could better be described as a war, as a series of battles. You know it, your kids know it, and God certainly knows it. Conflict. Conflict even finds a place to hide in the church. Perhaps you've heard me in the past describe the most egregious example of conflict in the church that I personally experienced. When I was growing up in a Southern Baptist church, I remember sitting out in the congregation one Wednesday night for a business meeting, which was always a source of either entertainment or dismay, depending on what exactly happened. But I remember sitting there that Sunday night, or that Wednesday night rather, and watching the chairman of the deacons and the husband of the pianist stand mouth to mouth in the front of the church, yelling at each other and come that close to fisticuffs. Even good biblical churches, which that one was not, are not exempt from conflict. I remember when I was at Grace hearing John MacArthur on a number of occasions describe that shortly after he arrived at Grace Church, a senior citizens class that had been relocated to another location, God forbid, had staged a sit-in on the patio. They refused to go to their classroom, their new classroom, or to the worship service, so all morning they sat on the patio staging a protest in conflict with the leadership of the church. Conflict in the church is so common that caricatures of fighting in churches is a part of our culture. Like the young father who overheard his daughter and her friends fighting and arguing in the backyard, and he went out to to mediate the conflict, and his daughter said, Dad, it's okay, we're just playing church. Conflict in every part of life is a reality in the world in which we live. I can guarantee you this morning that either you are currently engaged in conflict or you know someone who is. It's pandemic. But have you ever wondered why? Or more importantly, Have you ever truly tried to discern how it is that we ought to deal with conflict? James explains how it is that we are to deal with this inevitable reality of conflict. We find this in the first paragraph of James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. Let me read it for you. James writes, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us, but He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now, that is a difficult passage, because what he speaks of, the theme of this paragraph is completely applicable to every single one of us here. We will learn from this passage that there are very specific steps that we must take to learn how to deal with interpersonal conflict. And surprisingly, listen carefully, surprisingly, these steps have nothing to do with resolving the cause of the conflict. Instead, James directs us to take a long, hard look at ourselves first. In fact, nothing in these 10 verses allows us to point the finger at somebody else as the cause for the conflict in our lives. Instead, James, as it were, points his finger at us. But he doesn't just rebuke us, as Scripture does. This paragraph contains several eminently practical steps for dealing with conflict in our lives. The first step for dealing with conflict is found in verses 1 to 3. It's identify the true source of conflict. Identify the true source. The wisdom that God gives is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable. And in verse 18, he goes on to stress and emphasize the fact that peace and righteousness always coexist together. Think about that for a moment. Peace and righteousness always coexist. Where there is righteousness, there will be peace. And where there is no peace, there cannot be, there is not true righteousness. So that immediately raises an obvious question. What is the source of the wars and quarrels, the conflicts and conflagrations, the arguments and the antagonisms that can often exist even between Christians. Look at verse 1. Literally, verse 1, the first line of verse 1 reads this way. From where wars and from where battles? James doesn't even include verbs. One commentator believes that James is so carried away, he's so worked up about this, that it's as if he's speaking parent talk. You know, parents, how it is, how sometimes you're, you're so into what you're trying to tell your kids that you skip necessary parts of speech to get the message across. And that's exactly what's happening here with James. From where? Where is it coming from? What's the source? Now notice that James chooses the language of war. Both these Greek words that are here translated quarrels and conflicts, both of these Greek words, like their English counterparts, can refer to literal wars and battles, or they can be used metaphorically to refer to quarrels and arguments and conflicts. And of course, that's the sense James means here. Take a look, for example, at the word quarrels. 
The Greek word literally means armed conflict. From where do the armed conflicts among you come? It was used to describe either a war or a single battle. In fact, it's used later in the book of Revelation to describe the wars at the time of the end. The word conflicts originally meant battles. It's used this way back in the Old Testament in Joshua chapter 4, verse 13 in the Septuagint to refer to a literal battle with armed men fighting. But it came eventually to be used of battles that were fought solely with the tongue. In fact, in secular Greek, this word was often used to describe marital conflicts. In the New Testament, it never speaks, the second word translated conflicts, it never speaks of actual war, but always it refers or denotes verbal quarrels or internal arguments. So, from where, or as the NAS translates it, what is the source of the wars and the battles or the quarrels and the fights, and this is shocking, among you. Now remember, James is writing to Christian people. These are believers, and he says, where are these quarrels, these wars and battles among you coming from? Sadly, Christians are not exempt from conflict. You see this throughout the New Testament. We love to pick on the Corinthians, and perhaps rightly so, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul begins his letter to the Corinthian church by saying, I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. You turn over to chapter 6, you find that these quarrels had grown into lawsuits. The people in Corinth were so much at each other that some of them were taking other members of the church before the court. They were suing them. When you turn to his second letter to the Corinthians, you learn that things hadn't gotten much better. Paul had written 1 Corinthians to them. He'd written a letter that we don't have recorded for us in the New Testament. And then he'd written this third letter that we call 2 Corinthians. And at the end of this third letter, and all the time Paul spent in Corinth, listen to what he says. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20. I am afraid that perhaps when I come... I may find you not to be what I wish, and may therefore be found by you not to be what you wish, that perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances in the church. This is a reality. You find the same thing was happening in the church in Philippi. There were these two women, Yodia and Syntyche, who were at each other, and he urges them, he pleads with them to live in harmony in the church. It's a problem. And the same problem was true to those Christians to whom James writes. James writes to these believers who used to be a part of his church, and he says, I'm concerned about the conflicts that are going on among you and how it damages the testimony of Jesus Christ. 17th century Jewish philosopher Spinoza wrote these really chilling words. He says, I have often wondered that persons who make a boast of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all men, should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display daily towards one another such bitter hatred that this, rather than the virtues which they profess, is the readiest criteria of their faith, end quote. 
Wow, what a terrible indictment. What you and I have to do is we must each ask ourselves, am I a reasonable person? Am I easy to be entreated? Am I peaceable? Or is there someone, or is there, are there many people with whom I tend to quarrel and argue constantly? The people who know me best see me as a quarrelsome person, constantly engaging with at least one person and maybe a number of people in arguments and fights of various kinds. When there is a Christian who is engaged in quarreling and arguing and fighting and conflict with others, the question comes, where does it come from? How can this be? Where does it come from? You know, that's an interesting question in and of itself. Why would James begin his discussion of conflict with that question? There's an important implication to it, and it's this. You and I tend to look at merely the external. We tend to get carried away with the external, and we want to fix the problem by doing a little better in our interaction with people. But our God is never content to let us deal only with the outward manifestation of our sinful hearts, in this case, quarreling and fighting. Instead, the Lord in Scripture, we're always being taken to the sinful attitude or the thinking or the mindset or the motive that lies behind that external sinful act. You see, it's not enough to try to get along with the one you're quarreling with. You've got to ask yourself, why? Where is that coming from? What is it in my sinful heart that's causing me to argue with others? You need to discover what prompts you to fight and quarrel. What's the source? You don't have to look very far because James tells us exactly here where the quarrels and arguments come from, but let me just tell you, you're not going to like the answer. He tells us those quarrels, those fights that you engage in, that I engage in, they come from our sinful hearts. We're the real problem. Now, this is important because what do we all have a tendency to do when we get in a fight or a quarrel? We are the ones who are taking the moral high ground. We're the ones who are right. We convince ourselves we have this tendency to defend ourselves and immediately assume that we're right and the person that we're arguing with is wrong, that we are the ones who are in the defensible position. We're the ones who are taking some noble defense of the truth. But James doesn't allow that. He says, forget about the other person. You can read James 4, 1 to 10 all you want, and you won't find the other person in the argument mentioned at all. James is talking to you as you hear it and to me as I read it. He's addressing each of us individually. He doesn't even think about the other person. You see, it doesn't matter who the other person is. doesn't matter whether they're a Christian or not a Christian. doesn't matter whether they're doing what they ought to do or not doing what they ought to do. If you're involved in a quarrel and an argument, the problem is with you, and it's with me. And by the way, it doesn't even matter what the issue is. Notice that James never tells us in these verses what the issues were that were causing conflict among these Christians. We don't know. And it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter who was right or wrong. If there was quarreling and fighting, both were wrong. And that's what James wants us to see. If you're engaged in quarreling and arguing, the source of the problem is you. But James gets more specific. Notice verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures 
that wage war in your members? Now, this is obviously a question that is not a question. You men understand this. It's like when your wife says to you, you're not going to wear that, are you? Now, that is obviously and most certainly not a question. She is not looking for information. She's making a point. It's an affirmation. And that's exactly what James is doing here in the second half of verse 1. We could legitimately convert this to a statement of fact. James says, the source of the quarrels and conflicts among you is your pleasures. Now, this is absolutely crucial to understand. The key word here and the crucial concept is this word, pleasures. You'll notice that word occurs again at the end of verse 3. The word pleasures translates a Greek word that you'll recognize. It's the Greek word hedone. It's the word from which we get our word hedonist. Originally, this word was used to describe the feeling of desire perceived only through the sense of taste. Let me show you how this word is used in the New Testament. It's only used five times, two of those times here in James 4. So let's look at the other three times it's used. Turn back to Luke chapter 8. We need to get a handle on this word because it's crucial to unlock this passage. Luke chapter 8 and verse 14. Jesus is in the middle of the parable of the soils, or as it's commonly called, the parable of the sower. And you'll remember the one kind of heart, the one soil was the one with thorns, and the seed of the gospel is sown there. And Jesus is now explaining what that means. Luke chapter 8, verse 14. The seed, the gospel, which fell among the thorns, these are those who heard the good news, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches, and here's our word, and pleasures of this life. By the way, the word life here is the word bios. It's the word from which we get biology. He's talking about natural life. He says, These pleasures of natural life, of life here in this world, as opposed to the true pleasures that are found in God, choke out the gospel and cause a person not to truly, savingly respond. So we find that these pleasures are part of natural, fallen life and are antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Turn to Titus chapter 3. Here we learn something more about these pleasures. Not only are they opposed to the gospel, not only do they crowd out spiritual interests, but in Titus chapter 3, verse 3, Paul writes, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, in slavery to various lusts or cravings, and here's our word, pleasures. So we find that as part of who we used to be, we were absolutely in slavery to fulfilling the demands of our cravings and pleasures. In 2 Peter, and you don't need to turn there, but in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, Peter says, speaking of false teachers, they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Here he's talking about false teachers being given over to pleasure. Now, the other two occurrences are in James chapter 4. The one we've already seen in verse 1, the source, your pleasures. And then the end of verse 3, you ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. 
Now, what I want you to notice is that this word hedone, or pleasures as it's translated, is a synonym with another word you know, the word lust. Lust, by the way, doesn't speak of just sexual temptation. It speaks of craving a strong desire for anything that's opposed to God or outside of His purpose for you. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series, War and Peace, Learning to Deal with Conflict. Tom will bring you part two on our next program. Do join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening. The Word Unleashed exists because God, in His Word, has given you every spiritual resource you need to grow in Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that the power of God's Word be unleashed in your life.